Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to have Dan Wilson on the podcast. Dan's one of the best songwriters walking around. He's written and recorded and and sung uh, a bunch of songs you know, most famously as an artist, Closing Time. He's also written uh, Someone Like You with Adele. You produced that record too, right? Yep. Uh, And uh, he's won the Grammys and... Uh, wrote with uh, huge hits for Dixie Chicks, uh, and also and won Grammy for that, and and also uh, has written with Taylor Swift. Though it's unclear if he's allowed to talk about that experience, other than with uh, platitudes, and uh, and he and I got to spend some time uh, writing together over the last few weeks, which was an enormous thrill for me, and uh, and and Dan's also great on social media. Um, we first got in touch, Dan, because you wrote me, and it was so cool. You wrote me when I was doing the six-second screenwriting things, and you were like, hey, I want to do something similar. Are you cool with it? And I was like, yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I loved that six seconds, um, screenwriting in six seconds. And uh, it, I, I liked two things about it a lot. I liked the fact that you were making it a kind of artistic, artistic practice of your own. I'm just yeah. going to do this every day. And then I liked the kind of generosity of it, and I... I thought that maybe I could model uh, my own, um, you know, internet efforts along those lines. And it's worked out really well. Yeah, it's awesome. And and I mean, that was 2013 that I started doing that into 2014. And so, uh, you know, it's a long time that we were sort of internet buddies before we got to spend some time together. And so it was really great to get to hang out. And I have a a, a ton of questions um, for you, stuff I've been thinking about for a long time. I want to start, actually, you know, um, I don't know how much you listen to Mark Maron's WTF, but, uh, you know, he has this fascination with Saturday Night Live and always asks people who are on how it happened. I have a Harvard fascination. I have my whole life. I never applied to Harvard. There was no chance that I could go to Harvard. Right. but you know, and and mostly uh, once my son got to go, I I was able to extinguish all that. But. Uh, but when I'm talking to somebody who, who went around the time, you know, a few years older than I am. So I got to ask, like, no one just accidentally gets into Harvard. You and your brother both did. So how right. did that happen for you? And how badly did you want it? And and how focused on that stuff were you as, as a kid? And uh, did it mean a lot when, when it happened? Did it sort of codify something about yourself for you? Uh, well, as I don't know. I think my... my I'm going to try not to speak in platitudes about it. Um, yes. But I I was a really, really spacey uh, teenager. And um, I didn't really deal with things besides music and homework. Um, my, my time horizon was, was very, very brief. I, I really knew what was happening now. And the rest was really? a blur. Yeah. I, w- I was very challenged um, in planning ahead in any way. And that definitely... Um, that definitely uh, applied to the idea of college. I, I also because um, my background of education. My, my dad had gone to Dartmouth right. University or college, and then he went to medical school at Harvard. So the so the reality was there that it, that kind of thing could happen. But I was always getting in school. This is going to sound so dorky, but I was always getting comments like, you know, Dan could do better given his 
potential. And I did, yeah. I did well, but everyone was like, you could, you could even do better all, you know, consistently all the time. So I kind of had this thought that like maybe college wasn't for me, which is the dumbest thing I've, I, I can think of now. Um, and I will say uh, a friend of mine, this is so, uh, I've never thought about this and talked about this. I announced to my parents that I, instead of going to college, I wanted to join a traveling singing group of some kind. And they were really awesome. bummed, and they were like, what kind of thing? And I was like, well, I don't know. I have, a, I have this friend who just joined a thing called Up With People. It was like Hair or Godspell or something yeah. that traveled yeah. around in buses. And <laughs> I, 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 I hope they were doing drugs, but I actually think they weren't. They were probably, they were probably very religious. Anyway, yeah. I saw this as a model. Like, Dad, Mom, I think I'm going to join some sort of like, you know, teenage singing troupe and travel the country on buses. And they were like the hell you are. <laughs> I mean, telling that to your doctor and nurse, mom and dad is exactly. just intense, Exactly. Man. And, and, they're, and, and but they're, they're like, just apply, just apply to college. So I took my, I, I, ba I basically aced the SAT and ACT or right. achievement tests. I killed them. I got all my A minuses and minuses in school. And then I sent several colleges, a portfolio of cartoons that I'd published in magazines around Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be some kind of artist. Um, here's my thing. And then I, I, I got into a bunch of colleges, including Harvard, which, which we didn't expect. But I think they just thought, okay, you could be our, you know, we need an artist in every, yeah, that, every sure. class. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and did you, uh, I get that your dad had gone and that made it possible that's a really yeah. deep actually deep thing um yeah. i completely understand how i mean that's one of the things about like um legacies of is situations where people don't have that and it doesn't seem possible and how right. defeating that that could be so for you it didn't seem that daunting it didn't seem but but i mean yeah my my uh i was in suburban minneapolis i was Everybody helped me along. I was like the smart kid that everyone had to remind to be there. I, I was kicked out of a couple of plays that I was in because I missed. A, I would always miss the performances because I'd be like practicing the piano somewhere, and in, in, you know, or I'd be downtown at the library practicing the piano, and I'd find out the next day I missed the the the, the performance. Do you have a, so Do you have ADHD? I, I probably would if I looked into it. I probably have. Yeah. You know, I just never. I was. It was maddening to the people around me. So, I, but I had a network of people like basically like enabling me in a most yeah. like to talk about privilege like intense yeah. and and uh that you know that that helped me a lot but i i yeah, can't I, it's it's I, like I, and you doing poorly or people saying that to you didn't have the effect i mean you didn't do poorly like i was a kid who was always told i was so much smarter than my grades but you know my grades were terrible, and right. I got into Tufts and Northwestern as like a just they were crazy reach schools, and they yeah same thing. I sent, you know, I sent stuff that I'd worked on, and right. it w worked out. But it was like that; those were absurd reaches for, for 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 me. And sometimes, although I knew I had a lot of verbal acuity, sometimes I did wonder, well, if I am that smart, I should be able to, you know. Uh, like I knew I was smarter than a bunch of the teachers, but I did think, oh, <laughs> I should be able to do this work, even though I couldn't, like I couldn't bring myself to do it because right. I do have ADHD and it wasn't diagnosed then, but I, I yeah. couldn't do it. But but the question is like, uh, did you get down on yourself over this kind of thing? Because I would, 
start to convince myself I was like lazy and a, a loser and was never going to reach my potential, which is part of why I have this fascination with people who get their shit together and go to places like Harvard. So did, did you ever feel that way? Like, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm a fuck up. Or, or were you prevented from feeling that way? Well, I mean, I, I, never, felt, I never felt like I was a fuck up. Um, but I guess I have to say my, I mean, I had depression in, in high school yeah. and, uh, uh, like, you know, a lot of people and, and, uh, I, I had, um, like the most ridiculous level of hyper-focus of, uh, and which allowed me actually not to like, think about my achievement literally practicing the bass if i was doing it i there's there was no final test or anything that was as, as important but then when i turned my attention to studying for a final i was like a laser beam i just couldn't not focus to that degree about you know whatever it was so i think i i, I either i knew that once i turned my attention to something it would work out or i didn't it didn't seem important if I was trying to learn a Jaco Pastorius bass lick, nothing else was a thing. Right. I don't really know yeah, how to explain that, it. No, that, 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 that makes total sense. I mean, I, you know, that's one of the ways they do diagnose ADHD, obviously is hyper-focus is a huge part of it. And, yeah. uh, so I had that hyper-focus too, but it would only be on stuff that captured my, um, interest and, in, and, yeah. Uh, other than in English classes, it just never, it never did. And you also were able to recognize you were an artist of some sort. That became clear to you in, oh, yeah. in high school. Oh yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think my, uh, you know, we talk about reach. Yeah. Like, there's this there's this amazing book called Twenty Six Sixty Six, which is really really horrific and so don't read it but um Bologna, is that the bologna book yeah, yeah 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 he's amazing it's, that guy it's so great but one of the things he says was that the that the the main one of the main artists a, a, a novelist in the book he says he treats his um he treats his his, his he looks upon the, the artists that he wants to be like as kind of gods or icons he looks on on all of his peers as wannabes and losers and he looks at his own art as a combination of a game and a business. And although I never really had that sort of like dual game business thing, I definitely, I saw uh, being an artist as like one kind of game. And then all the other games were like minor games, like getting an A in a class or an A minus was like a, a minor game, but learning how to play, um, you know, Teen Town on the base was like a major game. And I, I, I learned that and I worked on that as the biggest game of all. And if you talk about reach, trying to write a hit was probably like, for me, like that's the reach, not, I mean, please, I, I know it sounds awful, but whatever college I went to was not going to be the reach for me. It was like making great music was always going to be the desperate reach. So yeah, you knew it was music. Did, did, um, did you know, I was, I was talking to, um, I read an interview with you where you said, uh, you know, you had a lot of friends who were g girls in, in high school and, and you would listen to them and maybe they didn't see you as, uh, threatening or like, like the other guys. And to some folks that would lead to some sort of insecurity, not being able to connect exactly as they wanted to. 
But I was talking to Getty Lee, and, and he told me that the proficiency he gained on bass actually gave him a kind of security hmm. because he had become, was able to become so proficient at this thing yeah. that it was like it armed him in a way. And did yeah. you get that a little bit, do you think, out of becoming good at, at music? Funny because um, I it took me a long time. It took me a long time to do any of the music stuff. It took me... Uh, I had been on tour with Trip Shakespeare for maybe five years uh, before I felt like I could throw down on the piano. And I don't really even throw down anymore, but I really felt like at that point I was like, um, I felt enough kind of cockiness about my playing that I, I you know, if you said, oh, you're going to jam with so-and-so, I'd be like, okay, I'll give it a shot. But that took me right. a long time to get to that point. And, and sort of the same with guitar. It took me about that same amount of, you know, five or six or seven years of touring to feel like, okay, I, I got nothing to be ashamed of here. I, I, you know, I, whatever sound I make is going to be of interest or stimulate something, yeah. you know, something's going to happen if I play a note, you know? Sure. So, but, but you also say in this interview that your dad said to you, you know, hey, be a parlor pianist. You'll always be able to, you know, play at, at, at a party. And, and, and you said that that's not, uh, you know, that turned out you never did. But I, I mean, you're in a literal sense, you never did, maybe. My but parents, in the broader my, sense, he was right, wasn't he? My parents literally thought, my, my parents were very puzzled by me. Uh, they just were so puzzled. And, and actually, my two siblings are, are, have all the same genes as me, and they're just equally puzzling weird artists as I am, you know? And my parents were not yeah. like that. My parents were not weird artists and they had three kids who were weird artists and would go into funks that lasted for months and they you know and and would obsess about what seemed to be irrelevant you know uh little projects or making things all the time anyway they my dad said um don't quit your piano lessons because you'll be able to play the hits of the day at parties yeah. and everyone will like you you'll be popular and it was so funny because like years later i told him dad i I still haven't been to a party where there was even a piano there, so I don't know. But actually, later in life, it became very handy in that exact same way. You know, of course it's handy. It's yeah. one of the handiest things, um, <laughs> and and like it is an incredibly great thing to be able to do. And yeah. you know, if you can pull out a guitar, and 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 still to this day, right? If if you could pull out a guitar, and now I guess some people could play closing time. But I mean, if you if you could pull out a guitar and play uh, Wild World, it gets you really oh, far in yeah. life. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, in my case, I can sit down at a piano and play someone like you, and and everybody can karaoke to that. You know what I mean? So it's like I get sort of two parlor piano. Uh, it's like a magic trick. And if you can play the piano or play the guitar or do something where the music just is complete, right there in the room, it's like someone who does close up magic. It's like what the hell just happened? two things occur to me. One is I actually cannot wait. I've loved watching the TikTok thing because you're doing a version of this on there. And right now, very few people have figured out that you're there doing this, but yeah. it's going to explode at some point. <laughs> and I'm having so much fun seeing like you literally playing uh, Treacherous, the song you wrote with Taylor, and you're explaining it and you're playing it, and there's like 27 people who've noticed. Like the algorithm hasn't figured out it's you yet, but when it does, and one day it shoves you out to 2,000 people, and then they, it's gonna just explode, which is you doing exactly this thing your your dad was saying. And I don't stop doing because it it's a great 
fucking thing. It really, I love and, and it's going to just catch and then go. I, yeah. I know what's going to happen, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and so people listening to this, you should go find Dan on TikTok because it's so great watching these, him play these songs in, in this way. But also, man, you've mentioned twice now the funk and depression and you kind of threw it off. Like, well, everyone goes through that, but that's not true. Um, and, you know, my wife, Amy, writes a lot about this. Her novels are all about this and mm. her movies, too. So uh, not all kids go through, all adolescents have moments of sadness, but that's different than three-month-long funk. So mm. how would that manifest, and how would you try to um, remediate it? <sighs> you know, I, I think that's the that's the mystery um, for me, because I didn't... Um, you know, I didn't discover, I had a couple of moments in college where I had to go see a counselor, like a therapist. Yeah. And, uh, and, but that was, it was really functional. I mean, it was really like, you know, if you don't start to feel better, yeah. uh, you know, you're going to fall apart in school. It was very functional. And I didn't really discover, um, like, therapy for happiness's sake until my late 30s early 40s and uh by that time it was really my life had changed a lot and my my patterns had changed a lot so i didn't really go into long stretches of just the blues like i had and so i feel like almost like my my young version of like getting bummed out for really really long periods of time and you know it's, it's a funny thing because i'm norwegian american there's a lot of shame in my culture around having like feelings whether they're joy or enjoy or enjoying food or being sad or having the blues there's just like tons of shame in in that norwegian background but also weirdly it's like a really depressive uh culture it's like i was gonna say how could there be shame you know? i mean like norwegian literature is literally all just like i, know. I woke up today and i was sad <laughs> i mean you know i pressed on because it's what you do but it was cold and then i, know. I was sad i, I had know. some fish i, know. I was sad a I little know. less sad yeah. i mean it's just all the literature is yeah, like know. that's I know. what it is so my my relationship to my my young psychology or whatever you want to call it is is kind of wrapped in mystery because i was unexamined uh you know basically it, i my family enjoyed that joke a lot from annie hall which is that the woody allen joke where he says uh i ran into a i ran into a shrink at a party and i i told him uh, uh my uncle mort thinks he's a thinks he's a chicken what should we do and the the shrink said well you need to you need you need to get him into therapy uh quick i think we can cure it but i said well actually we don't want to do that because we need the eggs we need the eggs yeah man. and i feel like in my case like the eggs were good and uh, and i'm gonna uh, even for me you know and so i didn't really examine where it all came from until way late in life do you uh do you read this author, this Norwegian author named Per Pedersen, P-E-R Pedersen? No. Oh, yeah, Out Stealing Horses, just today. Like, get that book okay. today. It's okay. incredible. It's like Amy's favorite book, and he's he's no joke, like maybe the best. He's like one of the world's best writers, and uh, he's Norwegian, and the books are not happy. But uh, <laughs> but again, they press on in between eating some kind I of read uh, it in, is, is that, salted fish item. The name sounds like some old neighbor of my, and from my parents' hometowns. Like, that would be like, 
Oh, over to Per Pedersen's house. Yeah. Per Per Pedersen. Yeah. Out stealing horses. You want to go and uh, read that book. Uh, You'll actually really thank me and maybe get some songs out of it too. (laughs) Um, It's just, I get older. I don't like reading really, really, really sad shit. But Amy was like a few years ago, you got to read this one. And I did, and it wrecked a Saturday, but a lot of jo- a lot of joy since then. Um, well, did you when you were in those funks, Dan Wilson? Did you mm-hmm. find yourself writing? Were you journaling? Were you coming up with with songs? Were you exercising? Were you taking drugs? What were you doing? Oh uh, well, in my like, when I was trying to figure out, I think one of the one of my like, let's say, in my teens and twenties. I knew I wanted to be an artist. I wasn't even really an artistic type, like the joke of a person who would wear a beret or like, yeah. you know, be very goth or whatever. I didn't have any like of the trappings. No outer manifestations. None, but I but it really was obvious that that was my that was my path. And because I knew that, uh the distance between how awesome I wanted to be and how much the things I made sucked was really painful and I felt it oh my God. intensely. You know, like, so I knew where I ought to be or wanted to be and how I wanted to uh, channel, you know, from the gods. And I knew that the stuff I was making through my, you know, teens and to my mid-20s was, you know, essentially compared to that terrible, you know, and it was very painful. And I I feel like one of my biggest kind of challenges was just kind of sticking with it despite this evidence that kept presenting itself to me that I sucked and I but it was only I don't know I'm I think I was okay I had a group of friends who always wanted to hear what I did like maybe six people and in my late 20s I kind of realized that I could lean on them emotionally almost not like for not exactly for validation but partly for validation so I would write something and I'd record a demo and I'd be like Oh, I can't wait to play it to, to those six people. I, this is oh, they're gonna oh, they're gonna love this. Like, or you know, we could uh, we could dance to this at a party or whatever. Like, I f- that was your audience. That was your audience. I found an outward, I found an outward kind of litmus test instead of my own kind of self, you know, loathing or what or, or insecurity. I, I I put it outside myself. Before I had a real audience, I had like yeah, these six friends. They they were always pretty honest. Like they would be like, I don't know, why do you have all that noise in the middle? That's too noisy. <laughs> Oh, it sounded rad to me. Ugh, it's terrible. Like, you know, real 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 commentary, but that that problem though of um having a feeling this is really valuable for someone who's listening who's like wants to do creative work and also like you and me didn't seem like an artist from the outside. I was actually scared to say the words till I was 30 or so. Like wow. I was so terrified of being an artist and I didn't look like the artist and, and, and I wasn't picked out by any teachers as being uh, an artist. But that that gap, Dan, between the feeling that you want to express and then the thing that gets expressed, when there's a big gap, it's really fucking painful. Yeah. Uh, but it also, I find that even in the work that we do, that works, that that, that works for the uh, for an audience, so that we know we've, for moments in it, touched the thing. It's so rare, even for the working. You know, we've both been at this for twenty five years in our respective fields. Yeah. Don't you find there's still sometimes this huge gulf between what you want it to be and what it, but like the feeling, the hope, and then 
just the work that results? Well, I... Uh, or do you feel like you always nail it? Now? No, no, I, no. I, well, first of all, anyone around me would tell you, you know, privately that I don't always nail it, that I'm still on a percentage, you know, of like one in 10 things I do song-wise, let's say, or recording-wise, is like, whoa, that's got the spirit in it. You yeah. know, that's, oh my God. You know, that it does happen, like, pretty regularly. But the other nine are, uh, I mean, you're great, Dan. We love you. You know, there, there's, it's kind of like, don't make us tell you what we think of song eight. You know, it's just, you're being mean. So yes. I, I feel like that... I'm still not at a point where I can say like, oh yeah, it's always dope, you know. I, it, it's no, not at all. But I do feel like part of the game for me is, uh, okay, it's really okay. This is a, a far-fetched metaphor, right? But do it. If if you're designing the engraved mathematical and geometrical patterns and messages on a spacecraft that is going to leave the solar system you can't ever look you know and you're intending alien intelligences to find this thing right you can never see your message the way the alien is going to see it no way there's you don't right. have an alien's brain you can't see it their way so all you can do is create something that given what you know and the pattern of your responses to other messages and your thought of what's more general, like more of a universal general reaction, you can make something that you think is going to tickle the fancy of possibly you, but you can never test it, and possibly an alien because it's somehow it it's uh, abstract. You've abstracted out the particulars, or you've put them in in a way that the alien will recognize as particulars. All those things to say, like. I'm designing the engraved, you know, panel on a, 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 a Mars, you know, orbiter that's going to go off out of the solar system and hopefully someone finds it as space junk and sees what we're up to. I'm designing it with the hopes that somebody's going to get something out of it, even though I can never get that thing out of it. Yeah, that they're going to recognize, somehow they're going to recognize something. They'll feel it. They'll feel, they'll get a message that even I can never get. Which is just a fucking mind game, but it's the that's the game, and that's fun and interesting, and I've, and you can only get a glimpse once in a while. If I listen back to a track, I'm like, oh, that's really good. I like that. No, that makes complete sense to me because when, when I think about the music that destroys me the most, there's almost no way that I'm receiving it in exactly the way that the songwriter intended it. Yeah. Exactly. I know that that's the truth. Yeah. I know that that's the truth of it. And in any kind of, in, in almost any kind of, of music, like if I think about even the hard rock that hits me that way or the country music that hits me that way, I guess some country music and one of its, the reasons I love it so much is that it is so literal at times that it's the closest to an A-B Right. You know, swinging doors is exactly what Merle wanted what it you to receive. To say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just so perfectly crafted right. that it has that effect somehow. Right. But you and I could both love Blood on the Tracks for entirely different reasons. Right. Well, I I have a maybe a counter proposal me, about that. I mean, I agree with you, but like I used to have 
kind of almost like an exotic feeling about metal musicians, for example. They, I thought that they were people with a different, you know, sensorium and a different, uh, uh, you know, moral universe and a different kind of uh, aesthetic uh, sensibility or like, you know, machine in their brain, right? And I thought that they were just a different kind of person. And I always loved listening to metal, but I always assumed that I didn't feel the metal the way they would feel it. I assumed that they felt it in a real metal way, and I felt right. it in a wuss metal way, you know, a wimp metal way. And then when I went on tour, uh, which was probably from 87 through 2002, like, but several years into that, I I had met so many musicians and every style of music. We would be on buses at festivals. There'd be people who did every different kind of music, um, you know, all the ethnicities, all the all the socioeconomic backgrounds, all the countries, whatever. Uh, and they all basically read the same books, essentially the same right. books. They all thought the new P.J. Harvey was amazing, no matter who they were. You know, yes. everybody thought that d'angelo was the best do you know what i mean it was just like so it was so universal and so shared across all the the genres and i realized oh there's nothing really exotic about that metal musician's brain in any way i'm i'm very close to that i have my metal reaction to their metal music is metal reaction it's not fake metal reaction and it's the same when i hear yeah. when i hear about like some famous person digging some song that i did I used to think when I was a kid that like famous people had a whole different menu of the arts that they would, you know, pick from like a whole different, like it would always be amazing that they would listen to the same records as me, but that's the way it is. Everyone is picking from the same pool. Yeah. I want to, I need to think about this. I've spent a lot of time around metal musicians too. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm a metal musician, obviously. No, no. I'm saying I've spent a lot of time around them also. And, and, and I could, and I think we could probably thin slice this because there's no way that lips from Anvil and you are seeing any music the same way. You're just not seeing things the same way. I'm pretty confident um, about that. But, and, right. and I would say like, no, right. I guess what I'm talking about is the mystery part of this, Dan, which is something Jacob, Dylan, and I were talking about the other day. And Jacob was talking about why he doesn't like co-writing, and he was saying, uh, with more than one other other person, really, and, yeah. and he was saying because to him, and he's one of my favorite songwriters ever, and he was saying to him, you know, 12 words might pop into his head that he barely understands, yeah. that are idiosyncratic, and that he'll make a song out of that. That's the expression only he could have in that moment, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is the thing he wants to be engaging with and living or dying by. Mm -hmm. And 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 um, if I think about somebody that I think both of us like, um, if I think about a song like um, not not Jake's, but uh, like like uh, "Walk on the Ocean" by Glenn Phillips, yeah. Toad. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, I've been literally Glenn. I've been friends since Glenn was seventeen. Wow. Uh, and I was probably twenty years old. Yeah. Twenty. I was twenty-one. "Walk on the Ocean" is one of my favorite songs ever. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with Glenn in my life. I've never asked him what to tell mean? me the actual story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've sp I could. He would tell me. He yeah. would tell me every single thing right. that made him write that song, and it would ruin the song for me. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? I 
I have this idea about what that thing that happened when these people met yeah. and went their separate ways was. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to know more than, I don't want to be disabused. Yeah. Um, and don't you, I, for me, that's the magic in this thing, uh, in, in, in a, in a way. Yeah. I think maybe also it depends like where, you know, there's always going to be some portion of the process where you're plugging into something that you definitely don't understand yourself. And you might be making a sound or thinking of a phrase of lyrics, like you're talking about Jacob, that even you can't understand. And there is, I think people are pretty um, wise to revere that uh, and respect it and not mess with it uh, or um, diffuse that sense of magic. But I think some musicians are, some musicians can find it closer to their practice. Like some musicians can start to play their instrument and instantly something mystical happens for them. Others, uh, like me, I, I only get to that mystical, what the fuck just happened kind of moment in my mu music at almost like random times. A lot of the time I'm going, yeah, this is working, but it's not that thing. And, and I, and I'm, it's not even like a constant sort of uh, self, yes. self criticism. It's not a bummer. I just can't, I just know when I've like, when I've like in, in, in uh, catching the big fish by David, oh, David yes, Lynch, I, one of my favorite books. Yeah. He, he talks about how he, he like, like, I think he says he feels like he drops through the floor when he's like meditating. And I think if I'm like playing an instrument or doing some music or thinking of words with somebody or, or alone, um, there are those moments where I feel like I just dropped through the floor and like it's a I whole other that. world, you know. But I, I do feel like some people keep that mystery very close to them so that like they don't even want to talk about what they're doing in any way because they're they either jump into it entirely or they're out. That must be a hard life in itself. I don't know, but I'm not like that. I have to get there. And then when I'm in there, I'm like, this is life. This is what it means. But I, I don't I, instantly go there. I, I agree. I always describe it as like that feeling of being hyper-present and barely tethered to the earth at the mm. same time. And it's hard to happen. And, and then Jacob did say, you know, the, then you have the choice. He said, you know, once you have those 12 words in this particular order, then you can rewrite as much as you want. You can, if you're a craftsperson, go ahead and like, but he's like, but at least it's always going to have been your thing yeah. on the other hand it seems to me you enjoy this process of co-writing yeah. writing with uh, other people that you get something out. i mean i will say i love the process of writing with you obviously you're a master at this and i'm much less experienced but the watching you cycle through ideas reject the stuff that didn't work really grab onto the stuff that did uh was fascinating because mm. i could see when it like lit you up you yeah. know uh yeah. and and when it like you're saying it wasn't quite right did it take you a long time to hone that as an artist dan as a craftsperson to to be able to no, yes, no, yes. Okay, that's worth chasing down. 
You know, there's one moment when I suggested something and you, uh, it was a song title of, of a, uh, that these characters in this song were thinking of. And you were like, that's close, but what's something else? And I said the other thing, and it was just both of us knew immediately, well, that's exactly what it should be, right? And it just made yeah. no, there was no reason why, right, but we right. were both like, yes, yeah. that's the thing. Like a smell test. <laughs> it is, it's just an instant thing. Did yeah. that always happen for you, or did you have to hone that and work on it? I say sort of maybe, um, I, th- <laughs> I think I had the certainty always, but I was wrong a lot before. Like I, I had to... I had to hone my rightness, but I always fucking thought I was right. <laughs> right. But that's different. That's totally different. In terms of then actually being able to get to that center place where you're not reacting out of anything other than... Directness. What? The, yeah, whatever that yeah. tuning... Like, like, like I'm lynching that book, my favorite thing in that book. Yeah. If you haven't read people uh, catching the big fish, you should. Um, is when he talked about working with his composer because... Anytime you're working with someone who has a technical expertise you don't exactly have, it can be really intimidating for you. And he talks about Bottolamente, and finally Lynch just, Bottolamente will play a thing, and Lynch will go, I just don't think it sounds exactly the way. I was thinking of a more purplish thing. <laughs> and then he says, Angelo, and, it, and he will just sort of say the most random shit to just say this isn't it yet, and send Angelo back to think. And then he comes back with some other thing, and I loved that as a, a way of, Lynch's total lack of, fear for being judged which creative people mm. often are so scared of being judged as yeah. wanting yeah or being fraudulent and lynch doesn't give a fuck at all it no, seems like that's right? meaningless to him it seems i mean he's a wonderful case because like he knows I, I i i'm gonna use judgmental terms and that's it's not right but i, I but uh, he knows that you know the emotions or impulses that he's portraying or or like uh rendering are are uh, you know atrocious uh, or you know alarming or 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 you know laden with shame or hateful or whatever and he doesn't i mean he's he's basically willing to put it all up there because he because he knows we have those thoughts too <laughs> like nobody has any standing to be annoyed at David Lynch movies, if they've ever had a dream in their life, or if they've ever been so mad they could, you know, want to kill somebody, like that, that you can't judge it. But it's still the rest of us do uh, fear judgment in that in that way, and it's only a rare person that has, you know. Well, I I love the I love the idea that he would say to his composer like it needs to be more purple or it's not quite right. One of my great. Um, experiences in music was a very extended stretch of years with rick rubin where rick would use his tricks on me like um uh you know the bridge um the bridge goes down and settles down the bridge of the song um moves downward and settles down but maybe a version where it moves upward and goes wild would be better and i would say to rick well okay, like, how, do you have any idea how that would be accomplished? And he'd go, I don't know. Right. And and then he'd, like, I'd be off. Like, okay, all right. That, now I know this mysterious purplishness well, yeah. is now what I'm going to try to do. <laughs> now, Rick is unbelievably, for, uh, I mean, I. he's so fucking brilliant. I mean, I think I might have told you this when we were having our Zoom writing sessions, but he... 
basically refigured out how I should do this podcast from mm. a distance because I was doing it. I was doing the podcast. I only my rule was only in person. I would never do it distance. If you couldn't right. get to the room I'm in or I can't get to you, I'm not doing it because right. the personal connection. Yeah. But when COVID happened, I said, "All right, fuck it. I'll do it um, just over the internet." But I didn't zoom with people because I was like, "All right, I'll just listen. I don't need." To. And then Rick called me up. We were going to podcast together, and he yeah. said, "Hey." I think we should do a Zoom and you should see, we should see each other. Yeah. And I said, why? And he said, well, look, I just want this to be the best podcast for you, but don't you think if you're looking at my face and I'm looking at your face and do you think we'll have the opportunity to really have a conversation? It's your podcast. Well, I'll do it either way. But, and of course he just produced my thing and made it so much better. <laughs> and, 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 you know, because that's just, he has the balls to fucking just say the thing yeah. and follow his instinct. Yeah. And I've done it this way ever since. It's so much better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, certain people, I think um, certain people have that, I mean, like, I joked about it, but I'm serious. I I thought I was right, and it was very handy in getting things done for a long time, but I wasn't right for quite a while. I just thought I was. But then eventually, actually, I was right. I, I, I got to the point where, like, if I like version A better than version B, we all ought to just trust that. I don't know. Let's just trust that. I completely understand that. You know, but but it's not a. It's not like. But I'm not like. I don't, I'm not going to go to the mat up over A and B, over A. You know, versus B. I don't care that much. But that's one thing that Rick has like, and I think he had it when he was 16. A is better than B. By the by the way, that works within your thing. Like I know within the world of the stuff that Dave and I do, yeah. our voice, our thing. Yeah. That's exactly right. If there are two possible ideas for a billion scene, if David and I think it should be A, it's fucking should be A. Right. We know that. Right. On the other hand, then you can skip the discussion. If, you don't have to talk. Uh, you know, yeah, you can just go to the next. Yes, step. exactly right. We just know that. But on the other hand, like if 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 you were going to write a song with Getty Lee for, for Rush, if Getty, in order to replace Neil, decided he wanted Dan to write a bunch of words, mm. your A B wouldn't. You would know. Oh, this is good, or this is not as good. But if you were in a room with Getty and Alex, Getty and Alex would know which version yeah. was the Rush song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that's a fascinating thing, which leads me to, like, when you work with an artist like Adele. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I know you can't with Taylor, but I, it's okay. <laughs> hey, how do you know that? I, but I never said you could. <laughs> I, just, I know because <laughs> in the world... You've never told any of those stories. Okay, so good. Thank I think you very it's really much. clear that uh, you've never mentioned other than that you wrote a song with her. Yeah, so she's great. There's got to be a reason. Okay, keep going. <laughs> uh, no, but with Adele. Okay, let's say. Okay, let's say. What is that process like? First of all, uh, here's a question: Did you know you were in when she opened her mouth? Could you tell I'm in the room with someone incredibly special? <sighs> Well, I I had already been a fan because of uh, Chasing Pavements and Hometown Glory. I already knew she was amazing, and I already knew she was amazing and quirky. Like, like I thought that was really interesting, that she had had hits yes. that were quirky. And uh, I, I don't say that lightly. Um, when we got together, we kind of shot the breeze for quite a while. Like... Uh, and she made me laugh and laugh. She was so funny. What put you together? How did it happen? Uh, it, you know, it's funny because it was like an effort. 
it was like a music business effort for a while to get us together and nothing came of it. The, uh, before that, the huge hits you'd written were Closing Time and the uh, Dixie Chicks. And Not Ready to Make Nice and all those songs on the Dixie Chicks taken the long way. Those were like sort of like the huge things you'd, you'd done at right, that time. Right, right, right. And uh, uh, basically, I, I had said to the people that I work with, I'm, you know, that I'm a fan of hers. And then there was some effort to get us together and it never worked. And then Rick uh, Rubin uh, got hired on as the like the producer executive producer of this album and then he started bugging us to get together and i think we had a session that got canceled and then rick you know very gently kind of i really think it, i th- really think you two would get along great you know like he just like he really kind of gently yeah. he's like a kind of a gentle kind of you know bulldozer and and uh uh so we when we got together it was it was because of him and actually there's something about that which is very positive which is when someone that you know is a a timeless genius has told you that yes. that you guys need to meet each other and collaborate you already have a crazy level of confidence you're like this is going to be amazing you know because yes. he said so right cuz uh he would also tell you that your studio needs to be a different shade of of the wall needs to be a different shade of cream colored white than what you've got or whatever he would tell you anything that and it'd be right every time so we went into it with that feeling but then the first whole bunch of time was just like just shooting the breeze and she made me laugh and laugh and i didn't really took us like an hour at least maybe more to get down to try to and then she showed me a few recordings and a couple unfinished things and then we went out to the piano and the guitar and she showed me a couple of very simple ideas. And uh, it was almost like midday when we started to do takes. We were working on Someone Like You. She played me the idea for Someone Like You, those first like three or four lines. And she played me the idea for Rumor Has It. And Did she have the chords to Someone no, Like she, You? No, she, she, play, she, she plays with one finger on a bass, moving the one finger up and down to play the notes. This is and the it's, details I want. So she's just playing the notes that she's singing, basically, Well, she like, she, the, her pattern that I, at the time when we were working, her main, her go-to pattern on the bass was the, the low note on the lowest string of the bass. And then she'd kind of arpeggiate on the other strings, but they were always not, in, not I mean, they weren't always in the chord. It was just like, but the bottom note was always the right note. And she knew she'd, you know, figure it out. She was willing to sketch, you know? So she, sure. showed, she, showed, awesome. me, she showed me, rumor has it, like many, a bunch of, like the scenario and the funny story and the iron, ironically funny, the twist of rumor has it. She definitely had a, that, like the, she had the, the script outline of that finished. And then she played me the first four lines of someone like you. And I, and I was like, tell me about someone like you. And she told me the story. And I said, okay, I think rumor has it is going to be an amazing song, but I, I don't do funny songs very well. So I don't think we should work on that. I think we should work on the sad ballad. So we, awesome. so we really weren't singing um, ideas back and forth to each other until mid-afternoon you know like several hours had gone by and then you start working on someone like you and then we started working on someone and like you. and when you write that song did you finish the song that day no uh we got we got it to the point where it where i had played the whole piano part uh and i had this idea that it should slow down and speed up but i wanted it to be with a 
click track. So Phil Allen, the engineer, and I kind of played and then altered the click track and played again and then altered the click track until the speeding up and slowing down. It was pretty subtle, but I we got it so that it all sped up and slowed down a little bit so that the piano kind of... I always feel like if you have one instrument in your demo, you want it to indicate orchestral reality even if it's or you know make make the listener imagine an orchestra so we got it all kind of yeah brilliant moving up and down in speed and we got the piano pretty much done and then um adele and i wrote she had a bunch of the first verse done and we got it to the point where we had a the first verse a chorus a sort of terrible second verse that lost its way i thought kind of terribly but there's more about that. And then a second chorus, and then it was over. Um, and actually, it ended with this sort of arpeggio that I played that was just like a series of chords that that was un, unclear what it was, but it, then it was, then, it, then the, the, tr the demo ended. So right. we sent it... Um, I, 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 we, we sent me and Adele MP3s of, of them, and we left. And then the next day when we got back together... I said, so what do you want to do? You want to write something new or should we work on the thing we worked on yesterday? And like, I didn't even know. I was like, I can't understand this. No part of this makes sense are we to gonna me. Finish, yeah. Are we going to finish that or not? No, I'm just really agnostic. It's like up to them. I don't want to write something that they're not interested in. I'm like, do you want to do that or not? I'm like very but You open. didn't go home that night and like say to your wife, like, I think that I just paid for our next two houses or like, <laughs> holy shit, I just fucking like... Like, I'm forgetting all that. I mean, I'm joking about that, but like, there is that thing. You didn't go home and go like, I think something crazy just happened. No, I'm, I'm sure. No. I'm pretty sure I went home. Uh, we, Diane and I and our two girls were were uh, renting a house in Los Feliz, and I'm pretty sure I I went home and said that I had a great day. I can't wait for tomorrow. Oh, that's great. I can't wait oh, for that's tomorrow. That's great. That's great. So we. Yeah. So the second day we got together and and I said, Do you want to work on that or something else? And and she said, uh, oh, we have to finish that song. And I said, oh, really? Why? And she goes, Be because I, I played it for my manager and my mom. And I was bummed because I hate it when people hear... Because all I could think of was like the second verse was so terrible. Yeah, the second verse wasn't right it was yet. So yeah, bad. So, so, so Adele goes, I, I played it for my manager and my mom. And I was like, oh, no. Um, and I said, well, what did they say? And she said... Uh, my manager loved it, and my mom cried. Uh, so I was like, okay, all right, let's finish this. I have to say, um, I was half right and half wrong about the second verse, because the second verse was half of the second verse, and the bridge very uneasily squashed together. Right, and so actually it all ended up in the song, just on in day different two, ways. On day two, I was like, I think we need to turn that second half of the second verse into the bridge, and right. then also, I, can you sing the choruses again? Because your voice sounds rougher today and more emotional. And will you? can you just sing the choruses one more time? And also, can you try some higher notes, which she's always been mad at me about because I, I made her sing these higher notes that she thinks sound too difficult or imperfect. It's like, that's her imperfection. And so we did, the, we did the choruses again. We fixed the second verse. We used the second half of that bad second verse for a bridge. That all worked out great. We left the weird ending because it's all a demo. And I got her to sing the high notes in the choruses by saying, I know you don't like them. I know you think they're like, 
you know they're too crack crackly sounding they, you know they don't they don't show you off in the way you want to be but it's just a demo it's just a demo so let's just use it and then like four months later no one ever says anything you send a song off to, to a label and an artist yes they never say a word they, ne they never go we hate you or like this is great or we're using it or whatever four months later or so i got this sort of desperate message uh columbia needs the the parts for the demo and i'm and i'm i, I think my manager jim told me do you have the parts for the demo i'm like of course i do it's four tracks right okay I'll, I'll i'll put them in a you know we transfer and send them to you or whatever it was at the time and then they then they reveal to us uh, oh we're going to use this for the record so did they just mix your tracks and yeah. that's the record yeah that's how you came to produce Adele. Wasn't that you were hired to produce Adele? You were just co-writing a song, and then they just used the record you made. I, Adele, and I are credited as as producing that together. Um, but I did what a producer would do if they were told to make the greatest piano vocal record ever. Yes, of course, of and course. I'm, and I and I tortured her on the vocal, and she didn't want to, yes. so I get credit for torturing her. And oh, that's producer! You produced yeah. the vocal, yeah, of course. Of course. She of course. never, so she never sang it again. Okay, I'll tell you something else. Okay, two two more things. One about the mix. Yeah, I had, I had the hilarious conversation with um, Tom Elmhurst uh, at that Grammy night. And I said, uh, he's the one who mixed the songs on that record, right. on, on 21. And he, I said, uh, well, you did a great job on that album. And he was a little, we're all a little bit loopy at that point. Sure. And, and I, I said, uh, he said, well, your song is the, is the best one. And I said, well, that's, it was probably the easiest mix you had. And he said, oh, yeah, it took me 45, minute, 45 minutes most of it was weeping. Oh my God, that's fantastic. And I was like, what did you do the rest of the day? He goes, I, I just listened to Mozart for the rest of the day and waited for them to send their comments. Waited for them but to send their comments. How, right, the comments, to send their comments. How disciplined and beautiful is that though? That he just fucking like, you know, got the sound, sound got the levels and just left it. Sent like it that's off. a whole thing in itself, man. Yeah, yeah. Then he said, oh, he did add one more thing. He said, actually... He said, to be honest, I, I hated the reverb that you had, so I changed that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's, so that's, that's perfect. Yeah. So when you then heard it on the radio, like, I always want to know this, because as you say, because when it's yourself, you actually can never see it. I can never see the work the way that, like, I can't, you know, yeah. I, I can't see anything I do the way that you see it, what I do. Like, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But like, when you heard that record, Rissa, did you know... And then as it starts, like, what did it feel like to you? Because the second time through something, I will say, like, here's how I relate to this. Like, Dave and, 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 and our first movie, we had no idea, right? You make your first movie. We get lucky. We get this incredible cast. The movie comes out. It just does okay. But then, you know, it becomes this thing that people love. And it becomes this huge DVD. Whatever. It gives us a whole career. And for a long time, you're kind of known for that thing. Yeah. And then all these years later, this other big thing happened for us with the show. And, like... Yeah. It changes. It, it, it's much sweeter. Like when, yeah. when the Adele and you'd had other big successes, but nobody's had any success like Twenty One. Like a closing yeah. time as big as it was yeah. and is yeah. wasn't in the culture 
what 21 was in the culture. Yeah. Uh, what did that feel like to you? And, and, and did it feel sweet in a different w- way or not? Well, I've only kind of come to terms with this this year, um, just in, in a re- retrospective way. Um, uh, you know, when, 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 when I was sort of getting going in music and I was first, first I was frustrated that I, that my creative method or my creative self couldn't make the outcomes that I knew I needed to make to really be great. So I was mad at myself a lot for that. So mad, so mad. And then uh, when I felt like I was getting a handle on that and things that I was making were actually good, I started to be sort of mad at the world for not like giving me a shot, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I, for a long time, I treated the, the record label band business as a huge trick to get people to pay for studio time for me. That's, that's a whole other era. But I needed someone to, to pay for, you know, a month and a half at a studio. Right. And I never thought about like fame and fortune. I literally was greedy for studio time. And I would always feel like I had hoodwinked an, another label into paying for a bunch of studio time. And that was my scam right. I was running. But then there was a certain point where I didn't really feel that kind of... When Semisonic kind of fell apart, I was sad and kind of bummed out. Um, for a bunch of reasons, I you know I missed yes. touring with the guys and stuff, but I didn't have that rage that that I had for, for those other reasons. And when Adele's Twenty One came out, and first of all, someone like you wasn't going to be a single, or at least it wasn't going to be the first single, but then it accidentally became a huge hit in the UK. Then it became the kind of like, well, I guess we must put it out in the US, and it became the sort of like almost like the label had been hoping to release it later so she could rock more first and then be sad, you know? Right. And the song just like, you know, just like elbowed aside all the planning, right? Then throughout that period of maybe like six months while it was like rising up the charts, I, I felt glimmerings of that, and I hate to say it, of that old rage and anxiety. Uh, like this could end at any moment. The label could pull the plug in it because it's too oh, it's gosh. too wimpy. Uh, uh, it was never intended to be a single. What What's going to happen? Like... No one's going to recognize what a great song it is, blah, blah, blah. Like all these responses that now in retrospect are so dumb, but I, I really felt them strongly. Like, you know, I, I was fil- filled with that kind of, oh, this could fall about, apart at any moment. And so that whole period when it was rising up the charts, I did not enjoy. And that's so sad, but it's life. And then when it got turned into a joke on Saturday Night Live the song that basically makes everyone cry no matter who they are. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, it was like somebody had done like a chiropractic adjustment on my brain. Oh, and I just great. was like, ah, oh, this is hilarious. I just need to enjoy how absurd this whole thing is. It's just so hilarious. And I really got into more of a mindset of like, you can't control things. Like, like Sony took someone like you off of the slate for, um, song of the year for the Grammys because they didn't want song of the year competing with um, Rolling in the Deep and right. they wanted something banging to be uh. her calling card. So they had, so they took someone like you out of those categories. And at first I was like, argh, you know, like so mad, you know, but then the, even that slowly turned into like, okay, this is just all so absurd, you know, 
And then oh, I would have been enraged. I never would have let that die. I would have been so angry about that. Then, like, oh a, my god, a year later, everyone's like, a friend of mine was like, "How does it feel winning a song of the year twice?" And I was like, "I, I, I won it once with the chicks, and it was great, but I only won it the one time." And they're like, "No, come on, man, someone like you was song of the year." And I said, "No, no, it was, it wasn't up. For, it got taken off the slate because because they didn't want her to split her votes." But it you know, was whatever. right. You did win the Grammy, didn't you, for album for of the year? Didn't you share album, the album for of the album? Year Grammy? Oh, totally. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, like, I'm just saying. Yeah. This friend of mine said, uh, "I said no, no, actually, it." it Someone like you didn't win Song of the Year, and my friend goes, "Well, it didn't win. It didn't win the real Song of the Year, but it won the the moral Song of the Year." <laughs> and to me, the yes. absurdity of that was like, "Oh, I can just, I can just laugh about all that now. It's, it's funny." That's fantastic. It took me like a year and to get that anxiety to go away and have it be fun. Well, and and the next time we do this, and I'll I'll have you back for a, a part two because. For different reasons, I'm sure when closing time became a hit because of different things in your personal life, that was had bittersweet elements to it yeah, also. Yeah. Uh, and so you haven't really gotten to have just an unadulterated time of joy with this, I, I, I wonder. You need one more massive hit. I could, if, 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 if there's such a thing in life as an unadulterated, joyful experience of a massive hit, I suppose I'd love to have that. But honestly, I, I don't know if... I mean, there's a great quote from George Harrison who said, and I'm paraphrasing, um, the fans gave us their, what do they say in England? Like their 10 quid or their 15 quid. Anyway, the fans gave us their 15 bucks, but we gave them our nervous systems. That's right. And I feel like, hey, uh, that's the deal. And, 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 if I can turn a kind of, uh, you know, uh, a complex psychology that's been challenging to, you know, work with in my own brain into yeah. music that people like cry over and like feel catharsis from and rock out to and, you know, get relief from, I'm, that's my bargain. That's the thing I'm doing. And, I, and I, that's enjoyable trying to control the outcomes of the world is is the opposite of enjoyable you, that's it's it's suffering yes. it's literally suffering but having that exchange with people through your art is is joy it is joy and i'll i'll tell you man getting to know you has been a, a joyous thing for me um, thank you brian you too and let's do this podcast uh let's podcast again together <laughs> because uh, again. we could just geek out on so much music stuff <laughs> yeah you know like eight years ago i think i said to you we should have a podcast together but now i feel it even more strongly um where we could just bullshit about uh music and the i can bullshit process. with the best of them of course you know <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. Hey, everybody, you can you can find Dan Wilson online. Um, he's on all the social medias, but the TikTok's super fun. Get over there, listen to uh, listen listen to his music. Uh, are you going to work on a Semisonic album? Well, we've got the EP from last year, um, "You're Not Alone," and that the you know um, that song got a lot of love on the radio, yes, and I felt, great. I've actually unexpectedly so, and I've got. Maybe eight real good new songs that the band could try to cut, and I and I love seeing them. I love hanging out with them. So, pretty sure we're gonna try to make 
either another EP or maybe two more EPs or something like that or another, you know, or put, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you what, totally do it. I definitely know one song that would fit great on a semi Bro, I know that one too. That's a good one. That's a banger. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Thanks, Dan. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Brian. All right, everybody. I'm Brian Koppelman. You can uh, find me uh, on Twitter or uh, you can uh, email me at the moment BK at gmail.com, but don't send me song ideas or script ideas. Those go right in the garbage. All right, thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye.